Well, I know each week I get the opportunity to share with you guys and oftentimes share little stories about myself or my children. I know a few, thankfully my kids are not that greedy yet, uh, but I'm sure the time will come. Today I want to share a little bit more about myself. And you may be asking yourself, why are you going to do that on a message that has to do with marriage and divorce? And I hope to make my point clear as I share a little bit about myself. You see, I've heard a lot about what the church is. And maybe you've heard what the church is from other people. Typically, if you look at the internet or you look at media or you look online, you'll hear things like, the church is a place that is bigoted. You'll hear the church is organized religion. The church is an institution that oftentimes is judgmental and belittles those that are outside of it and even those that are inside of it. Every time I hear these things, I'm saddened. You might ask why. Well, because for me, the church is not any one of those things by definition. Can those things happen? Yes. But those things are not only happening within the church. I meet people everywhere who are hypocritical, everywhere who are judgmental. You see, for me, when I became a Christian, I gave my life to Jesus at 15. I was raised in a Christian home by two parents that uh, loved me very well and taught me to go to church on Sundays, but not to just live church on Sundays, but to live church every day. Growing up, it used to drive me crazy when I would ask my mom what day it is, and she would always reply, it's the Lord's Day. And I'd say, no, Mom, but what day is it really? It's the Lord's Day, Kevin. I laugh at that now because I think whether she realized it or not, that instilled in me a perspective that every day is a gift from God and my life ought to be devoted to him. But the truth was, is I was not devoted to him. It wasn't until I was 15 years old that through an invitation by my sister to go to a church camp. And like many people have experienced, there at that church camp, a message was given about who Jesus was. And for the first time in my life, all I knew was that the loneliness, the purposeless nature that I felt like I had, that Jesus was the one that could offer me peace and wholeness like I never experienced before. So on that weekend at camp, I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized that weekend as well. And when I came back, I was transformed. I went through everything in my room and started taking out anything that I felt would keep me away from loving Jesus better. I literally took my computer, which was such a distraction and a stronghold in my life, and literally put it in my living room because I did not want anything to take away what I was experiencing, the wholeness, the peace, the joy of God. 
I also became very, very confused. Wait, what do you mean confused? Well, I became confused because everything that I was experiencing for myself made me think and feel like, of course, anybody who hears this message is going to want to experience what I'm experiencing. I need to tell other people. So I started sharing my faith with other people and then became very confused at why they did not want to experience the joy, the forgiveness, the peace, the wholeness that only God can bring. I've come to learn in the years since becoming a Christian that many people have what I would call an aversion to truth. That we make reasons why it is okay to not pursue truth, and maybe more specifically, to pursue the Lord and to allow him to truly be Lord of our lives. So this message that I have for you today, it's on a tough topic that culture doesn't understand very well. In fact, many people would say that preaching a message like this is incredibly risky, that I should just stick to the themes of God is love and there is grace, and those are wonderful themes, and they're very true. But if you look at Jesus' most important message he would ever give in the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about these things, which again, if it's important to Jesus, it's important to us. So I want to talk about these things because I believe that the closer we get to truth, the greater our faith can be activated by it. So today we are going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about divorce and we're going to do it in a very important way. You might be saying to yourself, well, Pastor Kevin, what does that have to do with your story? Well, the truth is, is that even though I am a pastor, the reality is, is however many years ago that I wasn't a pastor or Christian, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm just an ordinary person who has been transformed by an extraordinary God and an extraordinary book. So not just as Pastor Kevin today do I want to speak on these things, but as a brother in Jesus, as an ordinary person who believes that God's word has the power to set us free and to transform us and to experience wholeness and goodness in life. So this message is not just for people who are married. It's not just for people who are considering getting married, although I'd say please listen closely today. <laughs> it's not just for those that are divorced or who've, who've been divorced or who are single and never plan on getting married. This message is for all of us. Because as you will see in the message today, marriage and family are very important to the heart of God. And therefore, I would say it should be very important to the heartbeat of a church. Amen? Amen. 
So if you would, in charity and love, let's read now Matthew 5, 31. We're going to only read two verses today. I know you're probably wondering, when am I going to get through Matthew chapter 5? We've been in here for six weeks. But sometimes it, it requires us to slow down and take time in order to allow God's word to really soak in us. So let's go ahead and read now Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's super easy to preach on, right? (laughs) Of course not. See, our culture does not understand what marriage is. And by effect, because it doesn't understand marriage well, it oftentimes doesn't understand what divorce is. You see, what Jesus is trying to do here, specifically in verse 31, is he again is using this phrase, it has been said. He says this repeatedly within the last few sections. He goes, you have heard that it was said. It has been said. And he does this in order to bring up in everybody's mind what is common to the culture that he's in. You see, even if you didn't know this, even though the Jewish culture would have been a culture that tried to promote family, there was two schools of thought that were beginning to develop ideas around marriage and divorce. You see, Jesus is speaking right now about a specific verse in Scripture when he says, you have heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. He's looking at specifically Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And I'll put that on the screen for you there. And here it talks about the instructions about how to go about a process of divorce. And you'll notice a word there that's really important. And that word there is the word indecent. That if a wife does something indecent, then the husband can write a certificate of divorce. The, in, the, the Hebrew word for that is erva. And that specifically means to shame, to do something unclean, to do something disgraceful. And why is that important? Well, because there was a lot of debate on what that word indecent meant, even within their own time period. I know you guys are not used to two people arguing about what scripture really says, but this happened back then. (laughs) No two people ever argue about what scripture really means. So because of that, two schools of thought were developed. One school, the school of Shammai, and the other school, the school of Halil. And these two schools were competing in what they were teaching about this particular passage. You see, the school of Shammai believed that the word indecent meant something of sexual disgrace. 
Something that created sexual indecency or sexual impropriety. And that only then do you have the right to offer your wife a certificate of divorce. However, the school of Halil believed that what the word indecent meant there was anything that displeased you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been married, there could be a lot of things that you learn quickly that could displease you, right, on both sides of the ledger. So unfortunately, the school of Halil was promoting so much this idea that if anything displeases you, you can offer your wife a certificate of divorce, that it was being used as a way to dismiss women from marriage, even for things as ridiculously as a bad meal. Commentators during that time would have interpreted, you can even do this if your wife burns your soup. I know none of you are in trouble of this, right? (laughs) Now, it's kind of funny to us, right? Burnt soup, divorcing a woman for that reason. But if you think about it, and you look at culture, there is just as many people who in some ways are promoting essentially the same thing. That marriage is meant to do what? To make two people happy. And when you're not happy or you're displeased, then you do what? You get a divorce and then that's what it is. Because marriage is meant to make you happy. We'll We'll talk a little bit more about that. So Jesus, in this time, is trying to do what? He's trying to confront a bad theology. You see, people throughout history and even today will use God's word to make it mean something that it never intended. So what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to, in all of these moments, say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's trying to help the people see what the heart of God looks like. Because I don't know about you, but if I were a woman in this time period, I know that I would be incredibly nervous to hear this kind of theology being passed around men. It would make me feel like I had to be anxious and walk on eggshells and make sure that everything I did was absolutely perfect or what would happen. I would be threatened with a divorce, and that would not only destroy my life, but it would destroy my family's life, and it would hurt my children. You see, research even confirms this, whether secular or Christian, that one of the best things that you can do for a society is promote a man and a woman to parent a child together and to allow their marriage to work together for the sake of that family. That is the best thing that you can do for kids. Which is why it makes sense that Satan would use as a tactic to do what? To destroy families. That even within this time period of 2,000 years ago, Satan was working to do what? To destroy families. 
So, of course, Jesus, seeing these poor women have to live with this anxiety and seeing this evil theology come out of God's word, desires to do what? Set the record straight and help people see what divorce isn't. And you see, divorce isn't an experience of when somebody displeases you, you dismiss them. But in order for us to understand divorce better, we need to understand marriage better. Do we not? So here are some words directly from Jesus around the subject of marriage. Matthew 19, 4 through 6 says, Haven't you heard, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. You can underline that in your Bible. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, when the truth of God is ignored, death is welcomed in. It is why so often within Scripture we see that God detests lying. In fact, he oftentimes lumps up lying with some of the worst possible things that you can do in life, like murder. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, it says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And in that section, he brings up lying twice. He says, A lying tongue in those who do what? Give false witness and pour out lies. God does not like liars, and he does not like it when people take his truth to make it mean something that he never intended. Why is that? Because life, oftentimes, our faith is activated by truth. I mean, think about it, right? You, if you consider yourself a Christian, you became a Christian through the hearing of God's word, through the Holy Spirit ministering to you, by him speaking truth into your life. Because uh, truth is an activator of our faith, where lying brings what? Death. It was the lie that Adam and Eve listened to that they weren't really going to die if they ate from the apple. And what did they do? They allowed deception to come in, and then what came from that? Death. So Jesus specifically wants to tackle this, and he is reminding his audience that marriage is between one man and one woman, period. The purpose of marriage is many. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. In reality, you can probably add more things to this list. But let me explain to you what marriage, in my opinion, scripturally is for. Marriage is meant to complement one another. Marriage is meant to create life through procreation and stability 
It is a good thing when families are knitted together. It is a good thing when husband and wife commit themselves to working on their marriage in order to create stability for themselves and stability for their children. And children are an incredible blessing. I know that might not be a blessing for every person because I understand that sometimes child Uh, uh, conceiving can be a challenge or something that is not available for an individual, but doesn't take away from the fact that children are a blessing and a part of what marriage is meant to bring forth. In fact, Scripture oftentimes reminds us that children are a heritage from the Lord. Marriage is also meant to symbolize Jesus' love. Do you know that when scriptures talk about the church, it talks about the church as what? The bride of Christ. So marriage is literally the image that God uses to describe his relationship with us. Because church is what? The people. So God sees us as his bride. He sees the church as his bride. So again, don't you think Satan would want to do what? Put blinders on our face and not allow us to view marriage positively because then we have no way to understand in some ways our relationship with God. It's why one of the most common things that I experience when I'm trying to minister to somebody who has no faith is that they struggle with what? The wounds that they had within their own family. That they have a hard time seeing who God is because they had a bad father in their life. Right? Because fathers are oftentimes called to represent what? A smaller image of who God is that I will love, I will protect, I will guide, I will do these things that God is also meant to do for us in a greater way. So make no mistake, by Satan destroying families, he's destroying people's ability to be healthy and to properly see God in relationship to family in our lives. Ephesians 5, 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Amen? You know, oftentimes, when we hear this verse, we think to ourselves as men, I'm willing to die for my wife. Somebody came in, I'd stand in the gap. If the Titanic was sinking, I'd say, you go on the boat. And that's really great. I'm not saying that that is not a bad thing. But this verse means so much more than that. Men, this verse means that we need to live with a posture of self-sacrifice in order to lead our wives to better and good things. So it means that at times in my relationship with Michaela, that I need to set aside my desires for the greater picture. 
that I need to be willing to lay myself down for the benefit of my wife and my family so that I may lead them well. You see, unfortunately for us, many men do not understand how to do this well. They don't understand the self-sacrifice that is required, and I'm not trying to beat up at men because I think culture is already doing a great job of that. But I am trying to say that we as men are called to do something that Christ himself was called to do, and that is to set ourselves aside in order for the love that we have for our bride. And that is a beautiful thing. But you see, I think one of the problems that we face within our understandings of marriage is that we live in an increasing individualistic society, do we not? Everything is about I, me, myself. What do you want in order to make yourself happy? So because of that, I think marriage is struggling within our country. It's why most people are, are either going to get a divorce or they're going to be married. That number goes 50-50. In fact, if you didn't know, my generation and, and younger, for the first time in American history, are giving up with the idea of marriage altogether. And while you might say, well, what a terrible thing for the younger generation to do, can you really blame them for the example that we have set forth for this generation? Because what? Why? Because marriage, if it's broken up, is damaging to all people who are affected by that. You see, we want to continue to define love in the ways that just appease our pleasure. Interestingly enough, the word that is used for in, in Genesis in Hebrew, to, to signify helpmate when God was making Eve is Ezer. And it could also be interpreted as somebody who surrounds you. Isn't that what we all desire out of marriage? The feeling of somebody surrounding us, loving us enough that we feel a presence of their arms wrapped around us? The famous philosopher Plato said this, love is the name for our pursuit of wholeness, for our desire to be complete. You know, I think Plato was very right in what we, he said there, that in love we desire to be made whole. But there also lies the problem that many of us, when we pursue marriage, we pursue it with the idea that the other person needs to make us whole. And the problem there is that there is no person that can make you truly whole other than who? Christ. So because of that, we feel disrupted in our relationships when we are not loved unconditionally, when we are not forgiven no matter the circumstance, when we are surrounding ourselves in life with sin and don't feel that sense of that other person helping us through that. 
So what we end up doing is we end up placing an ideal on our spouse that cannot be met by them, that can only be met by Jesus Christ. And in so doing, what ends up happening, we grow displeased and upset by the other individual. You know, I remember before I got married, I appreciate some wisdom my father-in-law shared with me. He said, you know, Kevin, the things that you love about Michaela, you will one day be tempted to hate those same things. Why? Because oftentimes when we look at our spouse, we look at them for too much in things that they are incapable of giving that only Christ can give. I do not mean that your spouse can't bring you some form of wholeness. Yes, they can and they should, and you should work towards that, and they should work towards that. And the best way to work towards that is through mutually reading God's word together and allowing the truths in these scriptures to transform you. But if your only focus in dating someone, in being married to someone, is what can you bring to the table for me, then your perspective needs to shift away from that. You see, I believe that marriage is like hot tea. If you don't drink tea, let me explain why I mean it like this. Is it's oftentimes like hot tea, and you take two tea bags, right? And if you've ever seen a two tea bag, what color are they typically on the outside? White. And they look pure, and they look clean, and it looks beautiful. And then what happens the moment you set the tea bag into the water? All of the things that are inside of it come out. And that is oftentimes what happens in marriage, that on the outside, everything looks pure and good. And then on the, when, when you enter into the covenant of marriage and the hot water is brought in, then you see what really lies within. Now, that is also not a bad thing because through marriage, we are allowed to mutually convict and hopefully form in each other better character. My wife, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, has made me a better person. In the same way, I'd like to confidently say that I have made her a better person. So when Jesus is trying to speak here on this idea of divorce, he's trying to do away with people's poor understanding of what divorce is. The word that Jesus uses there for divorce is the Greek word apuleo. And that could roughly be translated into to be dismissed, to release somebody. But it also can be used in their language to mean to let die. You see, my experience as a pastor is is that oftentimes people who end up getting a divorce have really functionally lived as divorced people long before the paperwork was filled out. And that, to me, is a very sad state of affairs. And oftentimes when I meet people who are living this way, I encourage them and remind them that God, yes, does not want, doesn't desire for people to get divorced. He might permit divorce under certain, certain circumstances, but in reality, he does not desire that, nor does he desire for you to functionally live as divorced people 
And the only thing that's separating that is just a piece of paper. But we see that so often. Church, I want to be clear that divorce is a feeling of something dying, isn't it not? It's almost worse in some ways. I think some of us can maybe even suffer better if somebody literally died than knowing that that person is still living, but yet something is dead. That hurts a lot. But let me encourage you today, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you have been through a divorce, that that is not at the heart of what, where God desires you to be. And maybe you're the kind of person right now that's saying there are many things in my marriage that are not working well, that have felt like insurmountable obstacles. I want to encourage you that if God is for something, then he can empower you to get through something. Amen? And I'm not just saying that as a cliche. I believe that. But it means that it takes hard work. It takes commitment that will require the commitment of two individuals working through a lot of things. Because you see, that is oftentimes the hard part about getting married, is that you are imperfect and so is the other individual. And you're trying to become blended together through that. And there are certain things that one person might be good at that the other person is lacking in, or vice versa. But it is actually those two things coming together that can oftentimes look beautiful but so often we let our feelings rule us in this area and as a result we expect the other person to make us whole in ways that only God can make us whole so what does Jesus continue to say here in verse 32? I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we will probably take some time one day to really unpack the instances when divorce is permissible within Scripture, but to make the point very clear here, what Jesus is trying to dispel is ideas of just at-will divorce. I don't like something, I'm getting divorced. And helping people realize that if you live that lifestyle out, you are damaging more people than just yourself or just the individual that you're divorcing, that you are creating ripple effects of damage within culture and within people's lives. Here's the thing, church. I think I can preach a message like this and maybe some of us feel even more emboldened to speak against divorce. That is not what I want to accomplish. I could speak a message like this and maybe some of you can even be afraid to get married. That is also not what I'm attempting to accomplish. See, one of the saddest state of affairs for me oftentimes that I experience in a church is when I don't hear people's struggles. What are you talking about, Pastor Kevin? For whatever reason, whether it's because it's our American culture or it's because the way that we've allowed church to exist for the many decades, 
is we feel very uncomfortable with sharing our struggles with others. I want to be so for marriage and so for about trying to help people restore marriage, work through marriage, because I need that, that I want the culture to change within the church, not defining us that we're so against divorce, therefore people don't get divorced, but rather we're so for marriage that people don't even think about divorce. You see the difference there? So where does that begin for all of us here in this church today? Well, it begins with the opportunity for us to be authentic with one another. Can we be the place or are we the place where married couples or people who are already married or thinking about being married can be open enough to say, brother or sister, I'm struggling in this area. Can we be the kind of place that then responds to those types of people and says, how could I pray? How could I help be a part of making that situation whole in your life? How could we go to God together and lock arms and commit ourselves to honor God in all that we do? If you are struggling with something, and not just marriage, not just this topic, but if you are struggling with something and nobody within your church family even knows, then I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Because we are meant as a body to love and pray and care for one another. Not to be perfect on a Sunday. If you are coming here and putting up masks to other people and making it seem like you have everything together when in reality you don't, you've accomplished the wrong thing by coming here. This place is a place of healing. It's a place of peace. It's a place where we are praying for God's presence to be in our midst, not because we have everything sorted out, but because we need him to do it for us. Amen? And what would it look like if we as a church committed ourselves to these things in ferocious, I mean serious ways, I pray that we will. I know that we will. Because I believe that in, through doing that, we will embody even better the heart of God and the love that he has for marriage and for families. Because only God can make us whole. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can talk about these topics. I thank you that your word challenges us with these topics. That without your word, we would oftentimes not know how to orient ourselves when it comes to what truth is. Lord, I know that there are many people in here who have been hurt in some ways, through things like divorce or unhealthy marriages, whether it was their parents themselves or somebody else that they hold dear to their lives. Father, I pray that you would help us be a church 
that can, main, can, can maintain a commitment towards marriage. Lord, that we can be the kind of place that is safe to struggle, that can be authentic with each other enough in the challenges of life so that we can feel a sense of somebody else sharing our burdens with each other. Father, I pray that you would help us right now turn a culture shift within our perspective in allowing our minds and allowing our hearts to be about what you are for, not just what you are against. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. Lord, I know that there are probably some people that are thinking about their own relationships and how it could be better. Lord, may you empower them to speak to others, to be honest with their brothers and sisters here, so that we can all strive and work to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.